Please have a seat. Welcome back to our study of the book of Revelation. I'm so glad you've joined us for an exciting study in Revelation chapter 18. We're coming to the end of our study of the book of Revelation. Revelation 18 is another one of those parenthetical chapters that gives us more description, more detail of something that's going to be happening very significant toward the end of the tribulation. Revelation 18 tells us about the destruction of the city of Babylon as well as its wicked world system, an economic system that's going to be alive during the tribulation. Now what is interesting is that prophecy scholars have long known that for Revelation 18 to be fulfilled, the city of Babylon wouldn't have to be rebuilt. The Babylonian city, of course, was one of those prominent and powerful cities of the ancient world. It had stood as a place of prominence and power for century after century. It's one of the most impressive cities anywhere in history. Of course, was the capital city of the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, who built the famous Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, by the time of John, as John is writing this, it's no longer the world power and prominent city that it once was. A lot of that prominence have shifted to cities like Rome and Ephesus. It was still an important city, but was it really a powerful city? And within just a few centuries of John's time, it had really declined to a place of, uh, really it was little more than a town, eventually became completely uninhabited, and it was for centuries after century. Now, something very significant happens in the 1980s. This is why I love the book of Revelation. I'm convinced we live in exciting times, prophetic times. And the reason why is we can look at so many prophecies that lay dormant for century after century and are only now being fulfilled in our lifetimes personally. In the last century, and really even the last 20, 30, 40 years, so many prophecies that lay unfulfilled have happened literally and are being fulfilled even now in the 21st century. So exciting times in which we live. One of those prophecies was the rebuilding of the city of Babylon. Uh, it was in the 1980s that Saddam Hussein came to power as the dictator of the country of Iraq. And one of the first things he began doing in 1982, and it continued clear into the 90s, was the rebuilding of this ancient city of Babylon. In 1982, the building projects began. He began pouring billions and billions of dollars into resurrecting this ancient city. One of the most prominent and most impressive of the building projects was to resurrect the ancient palace of King Nebuchadnezzar using the original bricks of that original palace with the inscriptions that heralded the greatness of King Nebuchadnezzar. He built on top of those bricks that stood out of the ground about two or three feet, adding 60 million of his own bricks with his own inscriptions. And I quote uh, on these new bricks, it says, quote, in the era of Saddam Hussein, protector of Iraq, who rebuilt civilization and rebuilt Babylon. 
And it was so important, such amazing, that even the secular news media began noting this in the 1990s. June the 28th, 1990, Diane Sawyer, Sam Donaldson takes their show Primetime Live to Iraq, where they covered the wealth and the rebuilding of this ancient city of Babylon. And listen, what I find so amazing, so marvelous about this very thing, is that the man, Saddam Hussein, that certainly denied Jesus as the Son of God, that would certainly have denied that the Bible is the Word of God, himself, unwittingly, was fulfilling biblical prophecy. Though he denied the Word of God, he himself fulfilled the Word of God. God has done that so many times in history. First with King Nebuchadnezzar, and then with another king, not unlike that king, uh, a dictator by the name of Saddam Hussein. So why is the rebuilding of the ancient city of Babylon so significant? Well, quite simply, Revelation 18 could have never been fulfilled apart from the city of Babylon being rebuilt. Now, it says Revelation 19. I'm sorry, it should say Revelation 18. Revelation 18 tells us that this city will be destroyed. And uh, had the city not been rebuilt, then there's no way that city could have been destroyed what do we learn first of all about revelation 18 not 19 is that it prophesies babylon's going to be destroyed and so a lot of people debate well when the bible in revelation 17 now again in 18 talks about babylon are we talking about the little city or are we talking just symbolically in other words uh what this city symbolizes and i'm convinced personally that it's absolutely both of them not one of them but both of them, there's a literal city that's going to be destroyed as well as the wicked world system that it represents. And we can understand increasingly that during the tribulation, Babylon will become the hub of world commerce and economic activity. And that really is what Revelation 18 tells us. There's going to be in the tribulation a worldwide economic system. You've heard of the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, how no one can buy or sell or trade without it. So we know it's going to be a worldwide system. It's going to be a cashless system where in some way there is a global commercial system. And that here is the system, uh, a world system that will be destroyed. But not just the world system, the city specifically of Babylon. Now, uh, Revelation 17 records the destruction of the Babylonian religious system. We talked about that for two weeks. Well, Revelation 18 records the destruction of the Babylonian commercial system. That's what we're talking about here now today. Just by way of observation, just loosely speaking, uh, I want you to think in these terms. When the Antichrist rises to power during the last seven years before Christ returns, his power base will be located mainly around three major cities of the world. Rome will be his political city. Remember, in some way, uh, symbolically speaking, he is a revived Roman Caesar, and he reigns over a revived Roman Empire, a ten-nation confederation, in some way geopolitically, geographically, geoculturally, in some way that parallels the old Roman Empire. Uh, Rome will be his political city. Jerusalem will become his religious center, his religious city. Remember, halfway through the tribulation, he goes into Jerusalem. According to 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2, he will sit in the rebuilt temple of God in Jerusalem where he proclaims himself to be God, where he then will be worshipped as God. So Jerusalem will be his religious center. And it appears from Revelation 18 that Babylon will be the capital 
of his worldwide economic center or economic system. And so uh, when we talk about Babylon, I want you to think just loosely about the region, not the city specifically, but Babylon today sits just a mile south, just a few miles south of the modern city of Baghdad. And so when we think about the props and the players being positioned for the end times, there's certain places you need to watch. Rome would be one. Greece would be another, according to Daniel chapter 8. Uh, certainly Jerusalem is why it's a hotbed right now. All eyes are on Israel. And then certainly Iraq, which has been in the news really for the last 15, 20 years, really predating that, even going into uh, the late 20th century, the 1980s, 1990s. All eyes have been on that part of the world. And the reason why is obvious. These are the places the Bible tells us that will be a hub of world activity and a center of world power and prominence uh, during the tribulation. And God is positioning even now those props and those players on that platform. Now, throughout Scripture, Babylon is a symbol of man's desire to live apart from God. And so more importantly than just the city, remember the significance and the symbolism of this city from the opening pages of Scripture, from Genesis chapter 10 and 11, where we are introduced to Nimrod, who builds this tower known as Babel, that will become the city known as Babel and later Babylon. That city was a wicked, wicked city. That city is from where all the religious... uh, pagan traditions would come from and we've talked about that that city itself would represent uh, a system of rebellion against God Nimrod is a name that means Lord of rebellion he was leading a rebellion against God in Genesis chapter 11 as he built the tower of Babel you remember what he said come now let us build a city and a tower that will reach into heaven and build a name for ourselves Babylon would become a symbol throughout Scripture, mentioned over 290 times, of man's desire for rebellion, man's desire for self-deification, man's desire to live apart from God, in essence to himself become God. And that is now what God is going to judge. He's not just judging this city, though he did once in history already, as he came down and confused the languages and changed that name from Bab-el, gate to God to Babel, confusion. But it appears at the time of the end, he's going to come down and in some way he's going to do it again. He's going to put down man's rebellion that is once again founded in that very same part of the world of Babylon. Now the spirit of Babylon is present in the current cultural and commercial systems that is materialistic, full of self-idolatry and godless self-promotion. And let's be honest, here we are in the early 21st century. Have we ever lived at a time that is more Babylonian in some capacity? By Babylonian, I mean the selfie society in which we live, the self-idolatry. I'm convinced is maybe at an all-time high, at least in Western society as we know it. Let's get rolling here. The angel announces Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. Look what happens here. Revelation 18 and uh, beginning... In verse 1, it says this, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean 
and hated Burr. Now, I want you to notice this angel announces the fall of Babylon. And he says twice, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. Now, I don't know for sure why. I'm convinced personally. It's, uh, he announces that destruction first for religious Babylon and then second for commercial Babylon. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. Babylon the Great is fallen in its religious system. Babylon the Great is fallen in its commercial system. Babylon the Great is facing destruction in its religion and it's facing destruction in its economic system. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. Now this angel announces this twofold destruction for the religious Babylon as well as then for the commercial Babylon. Babylon, you see, is about to be judged once and for all and forever for four sins that she is guilty of. First of all, uh, uh, I want you to maybe look with me right here at verse 2. It says this in verse 2, And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon, the greatest fallen, is fallen, has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And she's judged in essence here for uh, four sins specifically. The sins of Babylon have been piled high one on top of another. And in essence, as Nimrod attempted to build a tower that would reach into heaven, it says in Genesis 11, they, they stack bricks and mortar on top of each other. In essence, what has happened again is society has built another tower of Babel to reach into heaven, in essence, to become God, to live life apart from God, indirectly in the face of God. And God is about to come down now and bring utter destruction for four reasons, four sins. Her sins are this. First of all, she is a demonically controlled system. She is a demonically satanically controlled system uh, look what he says here um, it says in verse 2 uh, that babylon the great has fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons a prison for every foul spirit uh, foul spirits unclean spirits unclean birds uh, birds in Scripture, according to Matthew chapter 13, are pictures of the spirit world. And birds specifically are a picture of unclean spirits, according to the illustration that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 13. I want you to understand, the systems of this world are demonically controlled. Remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, that Satan is the God, little g, of this world or of this age. 1 John five nineteen: the entire world lies under the power of of the wicked one. When Adam sinned, he passed dominion of the earth back to Satan, a counterfeit king, now controls all the world's kingdoms and all the world's systems that stand in complete opposition to God's kingdom. And that comes to fruition here in the tribulation, as Satan will have what he's always wanted for a short season to sit on an earthly throne over an earthly kingdom and be worshipped as God by the earth's occupants. And that comes to fruition here in Revelation chapter 18 as Satan himself is reigning over the kingdoms of this world. But all of that is about to change. Every principality and power, Ephesians 6.12, rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, understand the kingdoms of this world are currently demonically controlled with demonic princes, and principalities 
But that is all about to change in Revelation 18. She has widely influenced the world with material greed. Uh, that's the second of her sins. She is demonically controlled uh, by demonic kings over the earth kingdoms. And how has Satan traditionally withdrawn the worship from the true and living God? It's through idolatry. Now listen, the ancient people would worship idols of gold and silver and stones and precious metals. And I would suggest modern, sophisticated man is really no different. We continue to worship idols of gold and silver and metals and stones. Uh, we just do it a little more sophisticated. We don't come out quite as openly and worship at totem poles. But honestly, nothing has changed. The ancient people worshiped the god of Baal. Baal uh, was a god that really was a god of uh, one's livelihood. He was the god of agriculture in the days, of course, where a man's retirement portfolio and financial capacity was directly relational to the size of his crops and his flocks. Now, they would worship Baal, Baal a Baal idol. And I want you to see that men continue to worship uh, in that very same capacity. Greed and materialism has become the idols. The idolatry of money is uh, the idolatry of a Babylonian society. Look at what it says here in verse 3. It says, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Remember what Jesus said, What does it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world, but lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Here are men and women that have literally exchanged their soul for the temporary wealth of this world to be forever bankrupt in heaven. And so this demonically driven system, this world economic system uh, that is satanically controlled is meant to do nothing less than influence the worship of men from the true God of heaven to the God of idols, idols of gold and silver, precious stones. She's full of infidelity. Uh, she's full of infidelity. Look at what it says here now, and we'll continue reading starting in verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxury, luxuriously, uh, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow, and will not see sorrow. I want you to see this complete infidelity, the spiritual infidelity, the spiritual adultery it says her sins have built a tower and reached into heaven what's amazing here is god wants us to connect i'm convinced uh this babylonian tower to the first babylonian tower it says for her sins have reached into heaven In the same way those people as they built the tower of babel said let us build a city and a tower that will reach into heaven and in essence, what they've done here with their idolatry and now their infidelity and these sins of materialism and, the, and just materially greedy is that they have built a tower once again that reaches into heaven. And God is about to come down once again 
and uh, bring about destruction upon this rebellion. This word here, fallen, is the Greek word episen. Uh, the implication is that it's an instantaneous destruction. God is about to lower the gavel, and in one day, we're going to learn in one hour, He's going to completely destroy uh, this Babylonian world system. Now, you see her infidelity in verse 7. We, we see the same infidelity, the same uh, insurrection uh, of the first lord of rebellion, dating back even before Nimrod with Lucifer, who said, what did he say in Isaiah 14, verse 12? I will ascend into heaven. What did Nimrod say? Let us build a tower that will reach into heaven. Uh, what have the, these folks said? We're gonna, we have built a system that has reached into heaven. And God is about to come down then and put down this destruction. Now, not only is she full of infidelity, uh, she's full of inhumanity. Look at verse 12 as uh, we continue. Let's step back up here and maybe pick it up in verse 8. We'll read down to verses 12 and 13. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day. Uh, God is going to destroy her in one day. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord who judges her, the Lord God. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and live luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see smoke of her burning standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Once you know God is going to bring sudden destruction. God is going to bring instant destruction upon her sins and her inhumanity in this case specifically. I want you to look at verse 13 and look specifically at what he says related to her sins in verse 13. In cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and look at what it says, and bodies and souls of men. This is a system that is commercialized actually men. I want you to see all the various types of uh, merchandise that is listed here. And the merchants in verse 11 of the earth will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood and every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble and cinnamon and incense and fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil. These are all commodities of the ancient world. Uh, these were not necessities. These were all commodities of the very, very, very wealthy. But then look at what it says in verse 14 or verse 13. Horses and chariots and bodies and souls of men. What else do we know about the ancient world? At least one out of four human beings in the Roman Empire were slaves. And much of this wealth was built on the back of slavery. Now, living in our modern 21st century America where slavery has been banned for the last 160 years or so, uh, it's hard to fathom, but listen carefully. The fact that it hasn't been a part of American society legally for the last 160 years, don't misunderstand. Uh, there is still a commercialized system specifically of human beings all over the world. We're talking about human trafficking. This Babylonian world system is so full of inhumanity that it actually promotes slavery. 
and the slave trade is still alive and well uh, all over the world even today. I want you to notice something in this worldwide economic system. What happens when human life is devalued and uh, things are put above the value of even human life? In this case, uh, money is of greater value in this system than even human beings. Think about communism. Communism that says we're going to make everybody equal and make everybody the same. But wait a minute. If you go to China today in that communist system that is born out of the sense of everybody is the same and everybody should have equal value, I want you to remember something. In that system, it devalues the human being. That's why in communist systems, there are no civil rights. There are no human rights. If you go to China today, in many parts and many provinces of China, little baby girls are aborted for no other reason except that they had the misfortune of being conceived a girl. Little girls have no value in places in China because they have a system that allows you to have one child. And so people want boys instead of girls. And then the outer provinces of many places of China, there's no longer enough girls for all the boys. And so all of a sudden, boys have more value. And I want you to see in some way, that's exactly the system uh, that we're now seeing described here, where human beings have little or, or no value. And so consequently, God is bringing judgment on them because of their idolatry. And that idolatry has now promoted a system of utter inhumanity. Now, those are the reasons, but let's talk about the reality. The reasons for the judgment, but, but what are the reality now of the judgment? Look at verse 17. It says in verse, um, let's see, verse 17, For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster and all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. And what is remarkable is God's judgment and those who begin to weep accordingly. In one day, the age of grace is going to be over in the tribulation. And in one hour, God brings total destruction on the city and its system. Now, once again, there's lots of debate about what the city is. You can hear different commentators or theologians debate maybe Babylon. Babylon is just a symbol of um, today's world economic cities and centers. Perhaps New York is uh, Babylon in the Bible. And I remember even on 9-11 as the Twin Towers burned, how some commentators were commenting on 9-11 out of Revelation chapter 18 that maybe this was the fulfillment of this prophecy and how God is bringing judgment on what is today's Babylonian city as a center of world commerce with its New York Stock Exchange, etc. Or maybe it's Tokyo. Or maybe uh, it's another prominent, prominent city on the world scene. Now, what I want you to see is that we can all say with... Uh, a lot of, I think, confidence that places like New York or Tokyo or you can fill in the blank with any number of cities, they're all Babylonian-like. And there's certainly Babylonian, I think, symptoms of uh, every city in the world today in the 21st century. But I'm convinced that when God writes this 
chapter, he wants us to take it quite literally. And I've said before that I think one of the mistakes people make as they read the book of Revelation is they don't take it literally enough. And so it's certainly, I think, the implication that the world commercial systems uh, have certainly been destroyed, and that would include maybe New York and Tokyo and various other cities around the world. But the implication, I'm convinced, is that this rebuilt city of Babylon has become specifically a place of world prominence and a center of commercialism during the tribulation, and this city is destroyed in everything that it represents, the wealth and the greed. And we can see in some way what's happening here as these merchants and these wealthy men and women are now weeping over their loss. Uh, the stock market crash of 1929. You realize what happens historically as the Great Depression sets in right here in our own country. Do you know that men lost their wealth? And we're talking at the time, um, in some ways today, we're talking to the billions and billions of dollars. We're talking about some of the wealthiest men proportionate to the day in which they lived. And they lost it all in a day, in one hour. And you know the response of a lot of those men, literally? It said they, they, in some cases, they jumped out of a window in a high-rise office building of New York City, so distraught with their loss. Hey, in some way, that's what we're seeing here. It says in verse 19, they threw dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she was made desolate. And in some way, what's happening here is complete economic cataclysm. In the same way the Great Depression happened basically in one day, one hour, it all collapses. And of course, we have systems today built in in hopes that that won't happen again. But we know one day it is going to happen again in the tribulation as the worldwide economic system completely is destroyed. It completely uh, begins to collapse. One day the age of grace is going to be over. God is going to bring destruction and those uh, who had wealth and had made great wealth by the system will weep over their loss of wealth. But check this out. While the earth is mourning, heaven is going to be rejoicing. Uh, look what it says right here in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy prophets and apostles, for God has avenged you on her. I want you to notice that while the earth is in mourning, heaven is in complete rejoicing. The apostles, the prophets, the saints are all rejoicing. Why is that? Because they have been martyred by this Babylonian world system. They have literally been destroyed. Their blood has been shed. And God is now avenging their blood. I want you to remember something. We sometimes forget that when God said to us, pray for your enemies, uh, He wasn't saying, I'm never going to judge your enemies. He wasn't saying that I'm not keeping a record of the wrongs done by your enemies. When He said to pray for your enemies, all He was saying is, listen, I got this. Justice delayed is not justice denied. What you see here is God avenging all the wrongs that have been done against God's prophets and His apostles and His people. And all of a sudden, He's making true that promise of Revelation chapter 12 where He said, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't avenge yourself. You know what He said? For vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And friends, there is going to be a payday someday. And we should pray for our enemies. 
Uh, we should pray for those who are far from God. Yes, that those who hate God are the enemies of God. But remember, God loves His enemies, which means we are to love our enemies and we're to love His enemies. But just, just don't misunderstand. The love of God can never be confused uh, with the justice of God. The fact that God loves His enemies does not mean that God will not one day bring judgment on His enemies. And that's what's happening here now. He is judging His enemies the enemies of God and the enemies of the people of God. Now this is interesting. Look at verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. Uh, it's, it's kind of amazing. Don't miss this. The message is clear. Don't mess with God. You mess with the people of God. You mess with God. Don't, don't, don't mess with God. Because in the same way, you throw a millstone into the sea uh, and you have no hope of surviving, no hope in any capacity, God is going to completely bring destruction uh, on these people and all of their greed and uh, all, of, all of their idolatry. And keep reading with me. Look at what it says next. The sound of the harpist, musicians, flutists, and trumpet, trumpeters, shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. The sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. The voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. Here, here's what God is saying. Look, He has uh, continually wooed them. He's continually warned them. He has continually tried to save them. He's continually shined the light on them. But He's saying, I will shine the light no more, just darkness. He has said, I've continually sent the gospel to you and the light to you but never more anymore. The age of grace is over. And he's describing utter doom and utter destruction. And there's going to be in heaven the hallelujah chorus as the apostles and the prophets and the people of God rejoice for the justice of God has finally come. Righteousness will retreat no more. How shall we respond? Well, look at verse 4. Look back at what it says in verse 4. I'm convinced this is how we as God's people should respond at such an hour. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. God is calling us out. We live at the time, I'm convinced increasingly, uh, the time of the end. We're right on the threshold of the rapture of the church and the tribulation age. God is transitioning between the church age and the millennial kingdom. And we live right on this line in between. And what that means is we are seeing an increase of this Babylonian society and this Babylonian world system that is full of idolatry and full of the God of money and the desire for more and more, no matter how much we have. Listen, God is calling us out. And God continues to call us out. It is so easy to assimilate in them. But God is saying, listen, I don't want you to blend in. You haven't been called to blend in. You are not one of them. 
I've called you to myself. You're one of my own. He says, come out from among them and be you separate. He says, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. We are the called out church of the living God. You understand that we're the church of God. What's that mean? We're the ecclesia. And that Greek word means called out assembly. You see, we've always been the called out ones. And only in this latter portion of the church age, in the Western Hemisphere specifically, did the church ever become mainstream. And it could be argued that the worst thing that happened to the church in Western civilization is that we became mainstream. When God has never called us to be mainstream, we are a countercultural movement and always have been. And I would suggest anywhere in church history where the church has been mainstream, the church has eventually declined. But only in church history where the church has been an anomaly on the outside of society has the church thrived. I want you to understand that we're living at such a time as we are returning to the days of Rome, increasingly a Babylonian society, where we as Christians are increasingly an anomaly. And I would suggest that this is the greatest moment and the greatest hour since the early days of Christianity to be alive and a member of Christ's bride and body. He's called us out, so let's stand out. And uh, let's live for Him while we can before we see Him at your choice who you're going to serve. You'll either be a slave of Babylon and this Babylonian society wants to make you its slave or you can be a servant of the living God. It's your choice. Hey, I love you very much. See you next time. destruction any questions or thoughts or comments anything you want to talk about from uh, revelation 17 revelation 18 yep march hang on just a minute march if you would martin's got a mic tonight do you think that this e-commerce e-coin stuff is going to be something that plays into this so you're talking about the bitcoin, bitcoin. yeah so uh, I think what we're seeing is not the fulfillment of this system, but it's absolutely laying the framework for the system. There's no question in my mind about it. This Bitcoin, which, uh, which in some ways is a forerunner to a uh, universal currency that all nations are using to trade now, where for really the last you know, 50, 60, 70 years, the U.S. dollar has been a worldwide currency where other nations trade in the U.S. dollar. And the reason why is, of course, the U.S. economy is the strongest in the world, and it's the U.S. economy that holds all the other world economies up. And so the dollar became, in some ways, a world currency. But there are people that also know that with the fall of the U.S. dollar, guess what would happen? If the U.S. dollar suddenly crumbled, it was worth nothing. What do you think would happen next? And don't think that for a moment there's not people who are working for this end, who want a one-world universal system. What would happen if the dollar suddenly crumbled? The world economy what? The world economy crumbles. 
And from that cataclysm, a new world system economically would begin. And that's the implication. Uh, and the Bitcoin in some way very much is a forerunner of some type. Not a fulfillment, but a forerunner of that system. No doubt in my mind. What else? Somebody? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, Martin, if you don't mind, up here with Noel. He's still got wheels. Hey, Pastor Phil, it, um, in verse 4 it says another voice. The, it starts out with an angel, and now it says another voice. And then uh, as it goes on, it's like it's asking uh, God to, to do something like render to her and, uh, you know, punish her. And so I'm just wondering, what, what is that other voice? Who is that other voice? I don't know. <laughs> it's another voice. So it's, yeah, uh, we, we really, we can't say. Um, I think it could be the voice of Christ. The, uh, you know, remember, anytime when God speaks, uh, the Word of God is through the Son of God. In Genesis 3, when it says, Adam and Eve heard the voice of the Lord walking in the cool of the day, who was that? No, that would have been Christ, right? So uh, we can only surmise, who is this other voice? who's saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive her plagues. I think it's a really good chance it is the bridegroom calling to the bride, saying to his bride, come out of her. But all, all we can say is uh, maybe, because it just doesn't say who that other voice is. But the call is clear. Come out from among them, be you separate. Touch not the unclean thing. And I think, you know, honestly, the downfall of the church in America is the desire to blend in. I mean, it is the desire to be mainstream. It's the desire to be, you know, in the 80s, it was all about relevance. Um, and, uh, you know, it was part of the seeker-sensitive movement. If you're familiar at all with church trends and church history, uh, the seeker-sensitive movement that really began in the 1980s and really blew up in the 90s and was still kind of a big thing in the early 2000s, uh, it was all about relevance. And so it sought to minister to people's felt needs, and that's when Bible preaching became more like motivational speaking with some Bible verses sprinkled in, Right? Uh, and so consequently, for the sake of uh, relevance and hoping to reach, you know, an, an increasingly unchurched secular society, uh, it became more of a, um, a, a you know, desire to kind of, instead of change the world, become a little bit more like the world. And in so doing, I think the church lost its relevance. It lost its voice. Uh, when we're to have a prophetic voice in society... And that's what uh, Jesus wants us to restore when he says, come out from among them. We're to stand out, not blend in. We have a distinctly different message, don't we? We have a distinctly different worldview. We have a distinctly different set of values. And that is what made the early church so attractional. I mean, think about it once again. In the early days of Christianity, it spread so rapidly. It was an unstoppable movement. And it's not because 
Christians blended in because everything about them stood out. Everything about them was different. And that's what made it so attractional. And once again, you know, I think as, as we hear so much about our society, it's changing, it's becoming more secular. And let's face it, these are bizarre times. I mean, at my age, at the young, young, young age, as I said this morning, uh, though I'm past middle age, technically speaking, I never thought I would find myself saying some things as I talk to my kids and my, uh, my millennials, and actually they're closer to maybe gen, you know, generation wise, actually, 20, uh, 22 and 23. I find myself saying, as they ask me, Dad, did you ever think we'd see, I'd say, I, I, you know, honestly, I never thought I'd live to see that. Never thought I'd live to see this. Never thought I'd live to see this. Nope, never thought I'd live to see that. I mean, the cultural values and the cultural norms have so radically changed in such a short time. I can honestly say, yep, never thought I'd live to see that. Uh, and there's no possible way of saying it. You know, every time I talk about this transgender stuff on Sunday morning, which isn't often, but on occasion, I mean, somebody's got to say it because nobody else is willing to. If the church isn't going to, then who is going to, Right? And, and no matter how you say it, I mean, I try to be gentle. I try to be, you know, we love everybody. We accept everybody. We accept everybody, even if we don't accept all views, right? I mean, you've, you've heard me say it. It doesn't matter how you say it. I mean, the moment you say it, you become a hater. You become a bigot. I mean, that is the intolerance of the tolerance movement. You understand that? That is the hypocrisy of this inclusive movement that is inclusive of everybody except for people like you and me that just still believes the Bible is true. And that's what I'm talking about. No, I never, I never thought I would live to see American society where we're looked at as the evil ones. I didn't think I'd live to see that. But why should we be shocked if we really believe that Jesus' second coming is near? Why should we be surprised? Of course it's like this. As it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, Luke 21. We're returning to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Should we be surprised? Oh, by the way, you know what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Oh, well, don't say that. That's a bigotry. No, there's a reason it's called sodomy. As it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. See, we're seeing this rise of militant immorality. No, I didn't think I'd live to see it, but here we are. It's happening. And why should we be surprised? Now, here's what I want you to see. Come out from among them. We are called to stand out. We're not called to blend in. And that's what the church is called to do. And that's what you see now in Revelation 18, the command from that other voice, who I think personally can't prove it, can't say it dogmatically, probably the bridegroom saying to the bride, come out. Somebody else, anybody? Yeah, Larry. I was curious back in the 90s when we destroyed uh, Iraq with uh, Desert Storm. Did you feel or do you feel that that had something to do with the prophecy? Because Iraq is pretty much 
I think gone by the wayside now. So I think, I think that it, is, it was very instrumental, okay? First of all, it's interesting that as those troops were going into Iraq, they were told to be careful not to hit Babylon. They were not to hit it with missile strike. They were told to try to preserve it, try to save it, okay? I think the implication there, Larry, could be, once again, prophecy is easiest to understand once it's been fulfilled, but God is always moving the props and players around for the fulfillment. So uh, since we went into Iraq in the 90s, guess what we've been doing since? Rebuilding it. We've been rebuilding Iraq since having destroyed it and having deposed Saddam Hussein. So I think the implication is the U.S. has actually laid the infrastructure for the fulfillment of this Revelation 18 prophecy that Baghdad, specifically, when you talk about Babylon, think of Baghdad, think of the region. Uh, The infrastructure has now been laid for a modern commercial center in the world where in some way the Antichrist and his kingdom, will its religious base will be Jerusalem, its political base would be Rome, and then its commercial base could be the modern-day city of Baghdad, which we have built the infrastructure for that. We are the ones that have built the technology, that have built the bridges, that have rebuilt this city and this nation, I think personally, or at least possibly, because it will in some way be a very, very instrumental city and region of the world for the kingdom of Antichrist. Good question. Somebody else? Anybody? Yeah. Deb. And with saying that, do you think God will hold us, uh, the U.S., as a you know, judgment because we have done that? Okay, say it one more time. With... The U.S. being a part of rebuilding, do you think that God will hold us accountable? I think God will hold the U.S. accountable for a number of reasons. Uh, You know, people ask sometimes, well, are we under the judgment of God? Well, I, I don't know. We legalized abortion in 1973, and since that time, over 60 million babies have been murdered inside their mother's womb. I don't know. You think we're under the judgment of God? We've taken that which is sacred, uh, like marriage, and completely redefined it. I don't know. What's the definition of marriage? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, haven't you heard, don't you know, that in the beginning God created the male and female? He said that in conjunction specifically of marriage. We've taken that sacred, sacred institution that is meant to picture the bridegroom and the bride, the Lord Jesus Christ and the church, and we've completely distorted it. Uh, we wonder, are we a people of idolatry? I don't think it's inconsequential at all that Baal is a bull that was worshipped for generations by pagans as they would pray to Baal to advance their crops and flocks, specifically their portfolio financially, and there just happens to be a Baal, a bull, sitting on the New York Stock Exchange on Wall Street that hundreds and hundreds of traders will come by every day and polish the nose of that bull as they walk in. I don't know. I'm sure it's just, just coincidental, isn't it? 
See, America is guilty of a lot of these very sins in Revelation 18, aren't we? And so, uh, Deb, I think that God raised up the U.S., if you all know my opinion. It was from the U.S., it was from the Western Hemisphere and North America specifically that the gospel went out to all nations in the last hundred years as never before. Like never before, like nowhere. Uh, but what is happening in this once Christian nation, I think that God is even now slowly lowering the gavel. When you look at the judgment of God on nations historically, think about this, guys. God promised the Jews that if you fall into idolatry and you go with the way of your pagan neighbors, I will bring judgment on you through the hand of your enemies. I will send you into captivity. Now, think about this for just a moment. It took about 200 years for the northern ten tribes to go into captivity to the Assyrians. Took about another 200 years for the two southern tribes to go into captivity to the Babylonians. See, when God brings judgment on nations, he doesn't do it in a day. He doesn't lower the gavel instantly. He does it gradually, very subtly, and very slowly. You know why? Because I'm convinced he's giving you a chance to repent. He's giving us a chance to turn back. Now what we see here in Revelation 18, it says in one hour, in other words, when God gets ready to finally make his move, there it is. So uh, I, I personally think that uh, the U.S., God raised up to be a bright light in some way, a gospel base to the rest of the world. And more missionaries were sent out, more gospel missionaries to the four quarters of the earth than any other nation ever, anywhere, before. And um, when you look at the condition of our nation morally and spiritually, the anarchy, the chaos, one has to wonder, how much longer? So God certainly used the U.S., I'm convinced, Deb, to prepare the way for this Revelation 18 prophecy and Iraq and the infrastructure needed, it's not a third world country any longer, like it was in the days of Saddam Hussein. It's very much advanced, civilized society with all the modern technology of the 21st century. One could see how it could be uh, during the tribulation, in some way, the next New York for this king and his kingdom, a commercial center, a commercial base. Somebody else, anybody? Uh, Jonathan Kahn, the rabbi, he had a thing on the internet, which is the source of intelligence. They have um, recreated the gate, which is an arch, to the Temple of Baal. Did you see that? Somebody was just telling me about this tonight. Yeah, yeah. Um, they unveiled it in New York, and it's being put in Washington, D.C. as well. They're building it now. Interesting, isn't it? Now, I, I, it's the first I've heard about it tonight. I would say this. Anytime you hear about something on the Internet, may be true, may not be true. Christians, unfortunately, are given to urban rumor. That's what you want to call it. Now, here's the deal. doesn't mean it's not true. I would just personally want to pursue it a little more. I want to verify some facts. And it could be something really interesting to do this week to verify some of that. 
Jonathan Kahn, though, I think is very reputable, uh, historically, you know, fairly trustworthy. And so if that's your source, then I think there's a, I mean, there could be something to this for sure. They don't even know what they're doing. I mean, they're just completely blinded to the implication, aren't they? I guess that's what I want to know. What is the purpose? Except that we are a nation, we're a culture in the face of God. I mean, when you think about it, have we returned to the Tower of Babel? It says they were all of one language. And because they were of one language, there was this cumulative knowledge. And the reason God came down and put down that rebellion, because he said, now nothing they imagine to do will be withheld from them. They were dabbling in things they didn't fully understand would eventually bring their self-destruction. I would suggest that we are, again, one language. Uh, the world is connected by one language. What language now connects the world? The worldwide web. You better believe it. The computer language has now connected the entire world. And consequently, this cumulative knowledge uh, where now we have the ability, I'm convinced, as it was in Genesis 11 that made God come down, and now nothing they imagine to do will be withheld from them. We're right back there again, dabbling in things that we don't fully understand that human beings shouldn't dabble in. Well, I know, that's, that's just someone kind of standing in the way of progress. Yeah, I know. I'm just reading the Bible. I'm just saying. Yep. Martin, down front. We're keeping you busy tonight, Martin. You know, you're retired now. This is good for you. <laughs> Got to keep moving just because you're retired. Yeah, thanks, Martin. Appreciate it. Uh, this seems to be a period or era of prophecy, especially to us who are looking forward to fulfillment of prophecy. But it seems to me that uh, uh, when the fullness of the Gentiles come, then all of the unreached people groups will have been reached by the gospel. At that time, the church will be fulfilled and concluded in history and be raptured. Uh, so why aren't we looking more towards the linguist accomplishment of the enriched people group for prophecy Okay. instead of these things? Yep. Great question. Let me answer that. So in Matthew 24, Jesus said these words, then the God, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all nations and then the end shall come. So what happens historically, a lot of pastors, teachers, theologians, they take Matthew 24, they apply it to the church as if Jesus said it to the church. And if Jesus spoke that to the church, then the implication is we, the church, have to bring the gospel to all nations and only then the end will come. So if we don't get the job done, Jesus can't come. But that's not what Jesus was teaching. The context of Matthew 24 is not to the church. He's speaking specifically to the Jews. So who takes the gospel of the kingdom to all nations? It's Revelation 7, the 144,000 Jews in the tribulation. 
They take the gospel to all nations, which is why Revelation 7, John sees not just the 12,000 Jews from each tribe, 144,000, but later on in that chapter, it says of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation gathered around the throne. And so specifically, it's in the tribulation that those 144,000 Jews takes the gospel to all nations, and then the end shall come. And so... uh, we are still given this commission as the church to go you therefore, right? Take the gospel to all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Acts 1 and verse 8, to the ends of the earth. That's still our commission. But the good news is Jesus ain't waiting for us to get it done before he can come. He's coming uh, and you've already said it, the times of the Gentiles are over. Luke 21, 24, the last thing that had to happen before Jesus comes for his bride is not that we take the gospel of nations. The last thing that had to happen before Jesus came for his bride, Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. 1967, the Jews rolled back into Jerusalem for the first time in 2,000 years. Biblically, the times of the Gentiles are over. And has been for the last 50 years, which means every day that Jesus delays is another day of grace. Because according to what he said in Luke 21 24, there is nothing that keeps him from coming right now for his bride. So the next thing is he's going to come for his bride. The times of the Gentiles are over. And then 144,000 Jews are going to miraculously come to Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And then they take the gospel to all nations. And then the end comes. That makes sense? So Matthew 24, guys, has been over and over again applied to the church, but you have to go back to the context. Context is always the key. See, we have a habit, and we all do, of trying to apply everything we read in the Bible to us doctrinally, to us specifically. We can apply everything devotionally, but we cannot apply everything doctrinally. This is why, for example, we don't meet for church on Saturday. This is why, for example, that we don't bring a turtle dove or a lamb with us to church with a really sharp knife. Because it was written for us, but it wasn't all written to us. So in Matthew 24, it's the Jewish disciples that are asking specifically, not the signs of the rapture, but what will be the signs of your coming? And the destruction of the temple, they're asking, what is the signs of the end? He's just prophesied that the temple is going to be torn down. Now, if you're a first century Jew and Jesus prophesies your temple is going to be torn down, you cannot fathom how the temple could be torn down with it not being the end of the world. It'd be like somebody telling you, guess what's going to happen? Washington, D.C. is going to be burnt to the ground. You can't fathom how your capital could be burnt to the ground without it being the end of the world. It's the end of the world. So they're asking, Jesus, when's this going to happen? When is going to be your coming and the end of the earth, end of the age? So he's answering that question in the following verses, which is a completely different question than what are the signs of the rapture? What do we look for? He says, here's one of the things you look for before I come, before the second coming. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. So it doesn't happen in the church age. 
It happens in the tribulation. The gospel goes to all nations. Now, uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't still be involved in urgently translating the Bible. I mean, our church has been partnering and has for some time with uh, the Seeds Company, which is a part of Wycliffe Bible Translators and translating uh, the Word of God into the various languages of the world that don't yet have the Word of God in their spoken tongue. We should be all about that. The good news is simply this, though, that Jesus ain't waiting for us to take the gospel to all nations before he can come. Got time for one more. Anybody? Yes, sir. Martin, thank you. Is there any reference in the Bible, or do you have any thoughts on where the Antichrist, in terms of of uh, country might come from. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Go back. It's in the well. If you um, look, look at it from several months back, I did a message out of Daniel chapter 8. Okay, we've studied Daniel quite a bit in our study of Revelation because as you've heard me say, you can't study one without studying the other. Daniel, the Old Testament commentary on the New Testament book of Revelation and vice versa. So Daniel chapter 8 tells us that there are two Grecian world rulers, two Grecian kings that are forerunners of the Antichrist. They are foreshadows of the Antichrist. You have two men in history. One, Alexander, who everybody knows about, Alexander the Great. You have another one, Antiochus Epiphanes. Both of these men were Greek rulers, Greek kings. Both of them clearly connected in some way as a prophetic foreshadow to the Antichrist, the little horn, this king that would one day come. And so when you look to put together a profile of where this political leader will emerge from, I don't mind telling you where I'm looking. I'm looking at Greece. Uh, and the reason why is Daniel chapter 8 tells us two Grecian kings prophetically foreshadow this Antichrist, this political figure. Makes sense that God's trying to tell us, watch the country of Greece, and it makes a lot of sense. Historically, where do dictators emerge from? Dictators emerge from the ashes of economic cataclysm. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, coming out of the cataclysm of the French Revolution. Um, Hitler, uh, rising out of the ashes of economic depression as the German mark was worth nothing and people would literally wheelbarrow hundreds and hundreds of German marks into the market square to buy a loaf of bread. So what happens? It appears out of economic cataclysm historically dictators emerge. Have you been watching Greece in the last few years? This country is bankrupt. It is broke. But socialism is such a great idea, isn't it? I mean, it works everywhere. Now, here's my gift of sarcasm coming out. No, it breaks countries. You can't pay for it anymore. So they can't pay for it anymore. And so you have a bankrupt country that no longer can pay for all the promises they've made. And so it just appears that geopolitically, we have this record in history of how dictators emerge, we also have what is clear, clear Daniel chapter 8. Uh, biblically, it appears, so once again, the props and the players are in position for a dictator to emerge, first in Greece, eventually having 10 other nations, a confederation. 
He sees this leadership vacuum left by the U.S., Daniel chapter 9, 27, he steps in, brokers peace in the Middle East, and a political leader is born that the world will follow because he appears to have all the answers. Brings world peace, world prosperity, global economic system commercially. Um, can't say emphatically, but Daniel 8 sure does, sure does point to Greece as being a country to watch. It's 545. Hey, guys, love you so much. I'm so thankful for you. Now, next week, guess what next week is? Yeah, it is our last week of the well for the book of Revelation. So next week, we're going to study the marriage of the Lamb, the climax of God's plan. And then, as you've heard me say, I'm going to take uh, Revelation 22 and do four weeks in December teaching through Revelation 22 on the kingdom as a part of our Christmas series, and then our Revelation study will be done. You guys have been amazing. You've been here for the whole thing. Let me pray. Jesus, would you bless each one? I pray, God, that you would help each of us to live as though uh, you're going to come today because we know that you could. Help us, Lord, to be ready to see you. Help us, Lord, to be filled with the Spirit daily to shine for you. Lord, you've called us out. You've said, come out from among them. Lord, I pray that we could be a called-out people, that we could live as a called-out people, that, Lord, our church could be that called-out bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.